The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Welcome back to the Takeout. Maybe, maybe we can chalk up this episode as the missing episode from March 20th. Uh, that's the week we began a brief hiatus on the takeout as we all adapted to the new reality of working from many different locations around Massachusetts. And ultimately, we came back to your inbox stronger and better than ever, having gotten a grip on the pandemic era realities uh, later on in 2020. It's been a crazy year. And this is our annual countdown of the top 10 stories of the year that was. Uh, 2020, we certainly knew ye all too well. Joining us today to count down the 2020 top 10 list as voted on by the Beacon Hill Press Corps are Katie Lannon and Chris Lasinski of the Statehouse News Service. What a year, folks. Hey, Sam. Shocked to hear that you remember March 20th because I got nothing. (laughs) It's still March 20th as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) You know, As I said, this can be our March 20th episode. There are a few hallmarks of a crazy year. And for one thing, we had a story this year so amorphous, so omnipresent that its tentacles worked their way into many of the other headlines from this year. And if we haven't, if we hadn't given clear directions on this year's top 10 ballot, Everyone probably would have bulleted COVID-19 as top story for numbers one through 10. So as I was looking back at our takeout episodes from 2020, I looked back before our March hiatus, back before the episode where we first talked about COVID-19, we titled it Abundance of Caution. And Katie and Chris, there was an episode all about a major ground-shaking story for Beacon Hill. It didn't even make number 10 on our list this year after we saw everything that March through December threw at us. So, wow. But before we get into all that, let's just catch up quickly on where we stand effectively with just two days left for all intents and purposes in the 2019-2020 legislative session. When we get to further down on our top 10 list, we'll have some stuff to say about the Speaker's Office here in the State House. Um, but uh, uh, Chris, let's start with you on uh, maybe some big ticket conference items that are still hanging out there in the breeze. Uh, what signals do we get this week about what we can possibly expect on those? Yeah, we've got three major bills that have been stuck in conference committee since all the way back in July. Remember July? That was a month that happened. Covering (laughs) climate change, economic development, and a multi-year transportation bond bill. Not a tax and fee bill, but one to borrow and spend that money. Uh, You guys spoke to the new speaker, Ron Mariano, yesterday, and I, I believe his characterization was that one conference committee is close, one he's not so sure about, and one, the Economic Development Conference Committee, is still, quote, very far apart on those negotiations. Uh, Not exactly a great sign that 
those lawmakers who have been hashing this out in private can turn this around quickly enough to get it across the finish line by Tuesday. But that prompted uh, Senator Eric Lesser, who's leading the Senate's negotiations on that, to call me and say, hey, I, I don't think that's a very fair characterization. Uh, the earth was created in six days. We can create an economic development bill in five. And Katie, what are some of the other bills that we might see, policy bills we might see move um uh, toward the governor's desk. I, I, I know that uh, that flame retardants bill that got caught up in the end of last session uh, did make it there this time with enough time to avoid a, a pocket veto. But um, any other priorities that maybe the, I guess, old speaker at this point or the Senate president uh, had marked as things they wanted to maybe move on by the end of the term? Well, you know, I think we're in that kind of weird in between time period now where most of the things that were eyed as, as action items, whether it was done in July to get done in July um, or at another point in the year have kind of made their way to the governor's desk. One deadline that did seem to um, have a lot of weight for lawmakers this year was that kind of pocket veto deadline. You mentioned the the flame retardants bill that suffered the pocket the fate of the pocket veto last session. That's mm. sitting on the governor's desk as is at the time of our recording the the big policing bill, um, which we might see some action on today, uh, possibly before this comes out. Who knows? Who knows? Being really the theme of a lot um, within the legislature lately, especially when it comes to timing. Um, but that. Lot of the bills that came out of the um, the budget process, a lot of those outside sections that were subject to amendments, overrides, what have you, those are on the governor's desk with action due on January 2nd. And other than that, I think we're going to see a lot of local bills moving, um, things of that nature. We saw the, the abortion access bill recently uh, passed into law despite the governor's election objections after a grand total of three votes by the legislature to make that into law. So we're, we're really going to see what happens. There's always some end of session surprises, and I certainly um, would expect that this year in keeping with the rest of the calendar full of surprises. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Uh, so without further ado, let's get into this year's top 10. If, if you're listening, do a little drum roll on your on your knees there. And um, uh, number 10, MBTA finances, again, in shambles, services cut. Again, Chris, what happened? Yeah, I know the, the, the framing makes it sound familiar. You know, the MBTA is ending another calendar year looking ahead to a possible deficit. But this is like so many things on our list, a COVID-affected story. And the, the real difference here is that ridership has just absolutely plummeted on the T, dropped to less than 10% in the early days of the pandemic. And even now, 10 months into the COVID era, we've only got maybe 30% of pre-pandemic crowds still using MBTA trains, buses, and ferries every day. The problem there is that the T takes about a third of its budget from fare revenue. So with 
with so few riders, it faces just a, an enormous shortfall, probably more than half a billion dollars when all is said and done for the upcoming fiscal year. It's been able to use some, um, some federal aid to help close the gaps for now, but uh, T officials have decided that one part of their cost-cutting plan has to be to trim service. The actual road to get there was pretty rocky. We heard that these cuts were going to be permanent. We heard that they were not going to be permanent. Now they're kind of pitched as a way to take advantage of low ridership to save some money. And, um, you know, they'll, they'll revisit when they start doing the actual budget process this spring, whether they need to expand the existing cuts or actually restore some of the service they've removed. But, uh, you know, this has really shown a spotlight once again on many of the issues that the transit agency faces and what, if anything, Beacon Hill leaders should do to, to step in and uh, help the T out of yet another bind. Hmm. And Katie, coming in at number nine on the list, Biden wins Massachusetts and the presidency. Now, it was no surprise right, that Biden won Massachusetts. Um, so for the Beacon Hill reporters to put that as one of the top stories for Beacon Hill this year, what effect is Biden's victory going to have on the base state, do you think, that makes it of, of such import for Massachusetts? Well, I guess I, I, I'm not sure I'm going to agree with your framing there for a second. For Sam, um, because it was no surprise that Biden won Massachusetts in November, but it certainly surprised a lot of folks to see him uh, pull away with the Bay State in the primary. Um, of course, at the time we were having that kind of coalescing behind him, you know, Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg um, dropping out of the race and backing the former vice president. And not to um, spoil an item further down on our list, but that was. I think uh, an unexpected win, but of course, you know, it, it would be very unusual for the Democratic candidate not to take Massachusetts in the general election. And I, I think one of the big things we've seen, um, if I focus just on the, the Massachusetts implications, is the, the win here certainly led to a lot of speculation about who we might see in a, in a Biden cabinet. Um, there's all sorts of talk about Marty Walsh that's still going on. Um, and, you know, the constant, I think one of Massachusetts' favorite sports is uh, daydreaming about a Senate special election <laughs> and what what kind of political dominoes might fall there. Um, so there, there's been a lot of kind of talk about what dominoes uh, might be triggered by a Biden staffing up his cabinet. We've certainly seen some uh, Massachusetts linked names in his early transition efforts, including his on his um, COVID-19 and healthcare spaces, but that kind of grand, I guess, exodus from the halls of power in Massachusetts into the White House hasn't quite materialized and, and might not at this point. So I think, you know, I think it, um, a Biden win certainly put uh, Governor Baker in a in a different spot than he would be if uh, President Trump had been reelected. He's certainly been kind of no fan of the president's approach to the pandemic, and it'll be interesting to see how a how a Biden presidency plays out for a, a centrist governor. 
Sure. And as we, you, you're, you're quite correct to bring up the primary, which just seems so long ago, it must have flown out of my mind. But as we think about that and the general, um, it also uh, was touched by COVID-19 in the sense of uh, a huge expansion of early voting and vote by mail in Massachusetts, um, which I know some folks had voted for individually on their ballot, but we'll count it as part of this as a uh, a major shift in election laws in Massachusetts this year. Number eight on the list, also influenced by COVID-19, our state budget, historically late, possibly the latest ever, at least the latest in recent history. Uh, uh, Chris and then Katie, um, the budget was, what, around six months late? Um, do we think that what happened this year extending session to complete work on it and 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 kind of working out some of the stuff behind the scenes before moving forward with each branch's own version. Um, do we think that that's going to set any sort of a precedent for future budget negotiations or are things just in 2021 magically going to snap back to the way they were? I think that's I think that's a very interesting question that we just don't know the answer to. You know, I, I, there's there's a reason that sessions have typically ended right at the end of July um, for what is it two decades or so now so that lawmakers don't have this lame duck session overlap with difficult votes and election season and also can't sneak in really unpopular votes when they can't face pressure at the ballot box for those votes. I'm not so certain that they are eager to um, create a new system where they no longer have a roughly four month from formal session break at the end of every two year session. So, you know, it, it's certainly possible, but I don't know if I'd personally bet on uh, the lawmakers on Beacon Hill being eager to have formal sessions lasting the entirety of their, their two year sessions. Well, sure. How about the way Katie, that this, uh, that this impacted the negotiating process and, and might we see any lingering effects from that going forward? I don't know that this year is one that you can necessarily build precedence off of. So much of the way that this year's um, legislating and negotiating ended up playing out was driven by the fact that we had, you know, kind of a, a, a cataclysmic event um, in the middle of it all. Um, and on the, the question of how it'll shape negotiating is an interesting one. I think it's worth noting that we have, while never this late, the last, you know, we've had late budgets in the past. Um, and I think the, the big thing that we saw happen is really a, just a shifting in the calendar. It, you know, we, we often see these major bills kind of emerge right up against the deadline, and that has happened this year too, it's just that the deadline's been different. Um, I, I don't know if we'll see kind of more Zoom-based conference committee meetings in the future. It, it's hard to say what has changed about the negotiating process since so much of it happens in a black box. Mm. Um, I'd certainly be open to, uh, you know, if there's more, more ways to get word out about progress digitally, um, I'm open to seeing that continue. Uh, <laughs> We'll see what happens. Sure. Uh, number seven on the list, the Supreme Judicial Court, after the death of Chief Justice Ralph Gantz, retirement of Justice Barbara Lank, um, 
it has been remade as really Baker's Court, an unprecedented level of control for this governor over who sits on the state's highest court. And he joins a, a rare list of, I think, what do we end up coming up with, Chris? I think it was- th- I was just gonna, I was just gonna ask you, I think you led the charge on some of our historical research. The, the common refrain from the administration, I think it was, was that no governor since, um, was it John Quincy has- um, uh, John Hancock, all, that, yeah. Oh, John Hancock, right. Since uh, since has nominated all seven members of the court at once. What did you end up finding in your dive back through uh, through the list of justices? <laughs> well, even a month feels like a long time ago. I think I ended up finding Moses Gill and um, one other fellow from the late nineteenth century uh, had also appointed an entire court at at, at some point. Um, or that every justice on the court had been appointed by them. Um, but still a, a historic thing. And the first time it's happened in our, you know, modern history. Um, Chris, uh, what sort of methodology did Baker apply to picking these people? Or what, what sort of philosophy did he go for in his judges? Just to give us an idea of what leaning the court will have or, or what what philosophy the justices are going to have in approaching things. What's a Baker SJC justice characterized by? Yeah, I think it's important for us to to draw a really clear distinction here where for anyone who watches picks for federal courts and you can, you know, there's a tendency to affiliate that immediately with whatever, whatever party the president is from. Uh, That's not really the case with uh, SJC justice, justices here in Massachusetts. This is not exactly a, a conservative SJC because they've all been picked by Baker. Right. It seems like his picks have all been um, very, very studious, well-qualified judges that come from a wide range of, of backgrounds. We should note that I think for probably the first time in the court's history, three of its seven judges will be non-white, uh, three of its seven judges will be women. So there's been a, a pretty apparent effort here to remake the court into something that better represents the people of Massachusetts, and also uh, to pick people with diverse actual professional and judicial backgrounds. Um, two of the seven members, David Lowey and a new pick, uh, Serge Georges Jr., have both served as judges at the district court level, which I think only a handful of SJC justices ever in the court's hundreds years history have ever been district court judges. Um, another one of his judges, Judge Wendlandt. Uh, Katie, what is her qualification? Was she trained at MIT as an engineer? Yeah, she has a she has a in addition to her legal experience and I believe um, intellectual property law background, she has a mechanical engineering background with MIT degree and has actually built a robot. I'm not really sure what the I, I don't know much about engineering or robots, but I think that's probably a or worked on a robot at MIT, which is probably a pretty unique qualification among um, you know, high court appeals court type justices anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to see what that what that robot looked like. I, I've I've just all year been picturing, or for the last few months, been picturing that that robot from the Jetsons. So, I don't well, know. what about those dancing robots in that uh, what Boston oh, Dynamics? Yeah. Those the viral robot video that seems oh. to come out at the end of the year every year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good one. Um, 
Katie, uh, another chance for you to talk about the 2020 run for the White House. Uh, Number six on our list, Warren's run for the presidency. Uh, Massachusetts U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren. um, And she also um, appeared to be then going for the vice president spot and then maybe going for treasury secretary. And um, what what was uh, what was your takeaway from from Elizabeth Warren's 2020? Yeah, I think, you know, it's it's long been rumored that Elizabeth Warren had her eyes on the White House. And of course, um, it's not just this year that we found that out. It was the very end of 2018 that she launched her exploratory committee. And really her her run kind of falls into the, the pattern of this year, the pre-COVID and post-COVID timeline. It was ended pre-COVID. Um, I was thinking about this as we were working on this top 10 list, her Super Tuesday ballot casting um, was the last time I was in a crowd. (laughs) Same, yeah. Unless you count the lines at the grocery store to to get in. Um, But, you know, it was a really interesting race. Um, The way she described it after ending her campaign on March 5th was that she had gone in um, expecting that there was a a third lane beside the Bernie Sanders lane and the Joe Biden lane, but, but found that not to be the case. Of course, at, at various points, she was one of the top tier candidates and I think really cemented her status as a national figure in this race with, uh, you know, with buoyed by not only her policy plans, but her, her dog Bailey and her infamous selfie lines. You know, I think that kind of celebrity candidate status was something she really did achieve. And she's in the Senate still in a term that runs for another four years. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how she uses that role in a Biden um, in a Biden presidency and that that acclaim or attention, not always acclaim, certainly been a a target of the right um, for a long time now. And I, I think we've certainly not heard the last from her on a national level. Um, so with, uh, with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders still out there, it'll be interesting to see what, what comes out of the Senate. Yeah, yeah. And um, you, you are right that she didn't walk away from 2020 empty-handed. She gained that celebrity status or that, that higher prominence on the, on the national level. Um, and I, I also just want to echo one point you made that I had been thinking about as I went through all my photos from 2020 last night. And, and you're correct that that Super Tuesday was the last big crowd I think I took a photo of. And that this is the one story, we're on number six, this is the one story out of the top 10 that I believe um, really straddles the pre-COVID and post-COVID worlds. Because um, moving down to number five, the Holyoke Soldiers Home mismanagement, tragedy, scandal, um, resignation of Secretary of Veterans uh, Services, Francisco Urania. Um, and uh, geez, I mean, this. there were some stories early on in the pandemic that seemed to jolt people into really taking the virus seriously. And I mean, there was the one night that what the NBA got canceled and Tom Hanks got COVID all on the same night. And that really did a lot for people. But I think in Massachusetts, uh, Katie, am I correct that this Holyoke scandal was like the real 
bombshell COVID story that really shook people. Yeah, I, I don't know that it, it gets much kind of starker than this. You know, you have elderly veterans that it doesn't get kind of a, you, you couldn't really craft a, a more grim place for a, for an outbreak for these, these allegations of mismanagement. Um, reading that report when it came out over the summer, um, you know, the governor described it as gut-wrenching, and I think that's pretty pretty dead on. It was a, a very bleak tale of, of suffering, um, of families in anguish struggling to know what was going on. And we haven't heard the last, I don't think, about what what led up to that that outbreak, the the deaths there. There's still investigations going on. Um, you know, the legislature has its own probe as part of that. They've indicated they want to do work their way through that before acting. Um, there's been some reforms imposed administratively, but I think we haven't really um, seen the last of the ripple effects from this. Um, you know, the, the good news uh, such that it is, is that vaccines started at the, the soldiers' homes this week um, for, the, for the residents and staff there kind of marking a, a, an end of the year turning point, although I'm sure, um, you know, the, the experience of the past year is certainly something that no one who lives or works there or has family there is um, going to be able to put behind them so quickly. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, Lisinski, what's the latest with all of, uh, I know you've been following Bennett Walsh. What's the latest with all of his... Um, appeals or whatever he's been doing? We're, we're still waiting for the, the criminal case to unfold there. Uh, you know, to, to back it up, in September, Attorney General Maura Healy filed criminal charges against Bennett Walsh, the home's former superintendent and his former medical director, David Clinton, um, basically uh, aiming to hold them criminally responsible for some of the, these veteran deaths due to COVID-19. Um, we're waiting for that trial to, to unfold. Both men have pleaded not guilty, but this could really be um, not just something significant for Massachusetts, but for the country as a whole, when Healy filed these charges, she said she believes it's the first criminal case in the United States related to COVID-19 deaths in nursing homes. Um, this is a, a particularly egregious and tragic case, but we know that all across the country, long-term care facilities have been particularly vulnerable to this virus. So um, that's going to be, uh, um, as Katie was saying, there's a lot to, to watch out for in 2021 and the legal ramifications are certainly going to be one aspect of that. Sure. Moving on to number four, Lisinski, tell us about U.S. Senator Ed Markey, who is one of the older members of the Senate, uh, putting young Democrat uh, uh, um, Joe Kennedy III into early retirement. Yeah, I, I think you could sum this all up going back to last year when uh, Congressman Kennedy first announced that he was going to be running against Senator Markey in the Democratic primary. I recall being there in the huge media scrum um, and 
reporter after reporter asked him, well, why do you think that you need to, to unseat Senator Markey? What are you hoping to bring to this that Senator Markey doesn't? And that was really the question that defined this entire campaign. And um, unfortunately for Kennedy, he just never came up with an answer that was convincing enough to voters. It seemed uh, early on with a Kennedy running like it might be in his favor. I think that the early polls showed him in the lead, but that really flipped as the campaign went on. And Markey was able to portray himself, uh, despite his age, as a real progressive champion and earn support from younger voters through some very clever campaigning, uh, some references to his vintage Nike sneakers, um, and uh, ended up pretty pretty easily fending off Kennedy's challenge. I Someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think the oft-touted statistic here is that this is the first time a Kennedy has lost a federal race in Massachusetts, um, which, you know, a, a year ago certainly did not seem like we were headed in that direction, but that's where we landed. All right, folks, we're down to the top three. So do another, uh, another drum roll there. Number three on the list, a very recent story. After 30 years on Beacon Hill and after almost 12 years as Speaker of the House, Speaker DeLeo exited for the last time on Tuesday evening from uh, his office under the Golden Dome. And uh, for one thing, the first speaker to sort of choose his own destiny in a long time, because not only were the last three uh, speakers uh, indicted at various points, but before that, uh, George Kavarian, I think, was pushed out by the membership, and Tom McGee was unseated by Kavarian, pushed out by the membership. So it's just been a long time, um, a long time since a speaker has just set his own retirement date, said, oh, I've done what I want to do. I want to move on. I want to do something else. Um, Katie and then Chris, um, his successor, a Democrat from Quincy, Majority Leader Ron Mariano, and I walked downstairs uh, earlier today uh, down to the third floor, and both of their names are currently on the speaker's office, uh, which might speak to the, I don't know, the uh, constancy that we might be feeling with DeLeo's right-hand man taking over for him. Um, Ron Mariano's name is on the placard on the wall, and then the painted lettering on the marble doorway still says Robert DeLeo. Um, what, uh, what are your takes on this speakership change, Katie? Well, a very fast moving story, um, Sam, as you, as you indicate, um, we're just about a two week time frame from when Allison King first broke the news in a tweet that the speaker was in talks with Northeastern University about a new job there to um, having his successor elected in the, the Mariano era now underway. Um, and your your point about the the door labels, I think, is a is an interesting contrast to the um, tumultuous leadership changes we saw in the Senate a while back, where it seems like they were they were scraping names off that door as fast as they could. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is. I thought it was really interesting in the story Chris wrote about um, the the election of Speaker Mariano yesterday, um, which I think might have come from a, an interview with uh, you, Sam, and, and Chris Van Buskirk, where Speaker Mariano said he was thinking about heading on his way out with DeLeo um, at one point, but decided to um, to stay on 
And I thought it was really interesting. He talked about that idea of, of institutional knowledge, um, kind of leaving the house through a, a tough time. And we'll, we'll see what his leadership style ultimately turns out to be. Um, he's talked about openness. Um, I'm, I'm really interesting to see, I'm really interested to see how he will ultimately um, compare to Speaker DeLeo, not as a, as a better or worse type of question, but in a what's different and what's the same. It's certainly been a, a long time since the House has had a different person at the helm. And even though they are close allies, closely linked, I, I don't know how close uh, Mariano will ultimately hew to what has been the, the DeLeo style, the consensus building, yet still fairly top-down nature of the flow of bills through the House. Yeah, Chris, uh, what we've been hearing from uh, now Speaker Mariano um, makes it sound like he he might not, as, as Katie says, adhere so strictly to uh, not bring, you know, the DeLeo style of not bringing things down for a vote on the floor unless they're basically assured um, broad passage, broad uh, a, a approval by the other reps. Yeah, if we try to read between the lines, um, you know, in Mariano's speech to the membership yesterday, his first public appearance as speaker, I think he said something along the lines of um, there is a place for bold voices calling for bold change, and we need to respect that, but it's my job to recognize the political end of it and to work on consensus building and compromise. We can't let the perfect be the enemy of the possible. Um, so that that sounds like there might be a little more room for debate than there was under the traditional DeLeo um, only bring forward what we know will be successful model. But there is definitely still an emphasis there on consensus building and, um, you know, not stepping too far outside the, the lines of what is broadly popular. I think one contrast we've noticed already is that Mariano as a as a as an individual, as an interview subject, uh, seems to be a little bit more direct and a little bit more candid than Speaker DeLeo was, though we could always attribute that to more than a decade in the speakership role uh, versus newly stepping into it. So that that's something that I'm going to be personally, uh, as a member of the press corps, really interested in, in watching going forward. Yeah, and I just think on that note, it's going to be really interesting to see um, how Ron Mariano, the speaker, is different from Ron Mariano, the majority leader, um, if if he changes his approach now that his his job is different. You know, he's always been someone we can count on for a, a colorful, kind of more candid quote. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to see if we... Almost that is a microcosm, right? Like if he, his dynamic changes in the new role. Just the only other thing I think we should note um, as the Mariano era begins is this has been a really fast process, as Katie noted. A week and a half ago, it looked like we were going to have a fight over the speakership role on our hands with Representative Russell Holmes really strongly saying that the House needed to have an open speakership vote, that handing it from DeLeo to the man who has been his number two for a decade would just continue the pattern that has been in place since the, the Sal de Macy era. And that 
never came to pass. We don't really know what the conversations between Mariano and Holmes were, but um, you know, when yesterday came around, Holmes had dropped out of the race and he was the one who made the formal motion to nominate Mariano as speaker. So I think that that is a good early glimpse into Mariano's approach where um, we saw virtually no dissent within his own ranks. He was really able to get everyone in line, whether that's by you know whipping votes more aggressively or finding common ground and uh, present a pretty unified democratic front as he, he heads into the new role. As a master of the uh, contentious conference committee on a lot of big ticket uh, topics, um, I suppose Mariano is, is pretty good at getting people on the same page. Um, all right, number two, I'm doing a drum roll in case, I don't know if you can hear it or not, but that's, that's what I'm doing. In 2021, I think our podcast resolution needs to be bigger budget for sound effects. You know, yeah, I, I think uh, Chris Van Buskirk, our producer, ought to, ought to get some sound effects going. Um, Number two on the list, um, a major one for 2020, reckoning on race across America, leading to police reform here in Massachusetts. Um, and of course, the, the real um, touch point that started all this off was um, the uh, death of George Floyd uh, at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer um, in uh, May, and uh, then we saw uh, massive protests around the country, leading to massive protests around the country, including here in Boston, um, including a, a big night, I think it was the night of May 31st into June 1st, was just a, a, a massive uh, event here in Boston. And uh, then the Black and Latino Legislative Caucus came forward with a, a set of policy points that they wanted to see action on this session. Um, and uh, sure enough, uh, we've we've got some legislation that's been back to Baker's desk, been back to the legislature, back to Baker's desk. Um, Katie and then Chris, uh, walk us through this sort of monumental story that stretched through many different stages from protests to um, to well, we're heading towards state law. Yeah, I think this has really been a, a huge theme of the year, you know, is this kind of, uh, as you put it, a, a reckoning on race. I don't think it's, it's certainly not done. Um, and it certainly didn't materialize this year. It's been bubbling up for a long time. And I think there's been an undercurrent of activism that really, I think, will continue beyond the, the calendar year and the legislative session. Um, and it really did push legislators to something that ha has been talked about for years. These weren't all necessarily new ideas. Um, police certification is something the governor had said he'd been in talks with the Black and Latino Caucus on prior to this kind of um, groundswell of activism. And... It, it looked at times like this might not get done. It was something that the the deadline had been set for July. Um, legislative leaders wanted to get a bill complete by that point. That got pushed out, as did the end of sessions. Um, the police unions had opposition to measures in the bill. The governor had changes he wanted to see from what the legislators, legislature sent him. Ultimately, um, 
lawmakers reached what, what seems like a compromise with the governor and uh, his, his action could be coming on that soon, imminently. <laughs> but yeah, it's been a kind of a, a back and forth process that's really stretched throughout the year. Yeah, and and I I thank you for pointing out the power of activism in this case, because sometimes there's a big bill that advocacy groups want to see move on Beacon Hill and in in pre-COVID times. You'd see them marching through the marble corridors, their chants echoing, carrying banners, wearing T-shirts, and still, you know, maybe nothing happens with that bill. But here's a case where there was no legislation. We had massive protests. We had major calls from from a, a slew of advocacy groups and then a bill materialized and and all the way down to a compromise amendment process with the governor so it, it was really a if, if you think about the schoolhouse rock how a bill becomes a law like this was this was really the the full gamut of that uh, chris what's your take on on this policing reform I recall, I think it was Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz, one of the negotiators who hashed out the, the differences between the original House and Senate bills and produced the compromise that lawmakers you know, ended up sending to, to Governor Baker. When they came up with an amendment um, based on Baker's feedback, I think she told you and Chris, Sam, that this bill is not perfect, that she's not, um, you know, over the moon about it. It does not have everything that she wants or everything that activists look for, but that it is a significant, even monumental step in the right direction toward reform. And I, I you know, that characterization of it, I think, really stands out over the course of, of this year. Um, to find common ground between the, the legislature's more progressive members, its centrist Democrats, activists from the outside, and the Republican governor is a really big deal on a difficult topic like this to get something over the finish line we've seen we've seen scores of bills that are less high profile um, less less contentious just stall out at the finish line session after session and you know to their credit lawmakers were actually able to to get this done over what is it maybe a six month period so um, it's it's you know really a standout moment for the the 2020 session. Indeed. All right. Can anyone guess the number one story of 2020? Was it your visit to Quebec? Hey, that was a great time. <laughs> <laughs> I actually can't believe that was in 2020. I, I would have guessed it was last year. I mean, thank God all the expensive hotel and restaurant reservations uh you know, were made for a month before COVID hit and not a month <laughs> after. Um, really got lucky with that one. Um, no, I, I, I just uh, absentmindedly mentioned the number one story. It is COVID. <laughs> no need for dramatic pause or dramatic effect there. Um, COVID-19 and the state's response to it is, of course, the number one story of this very long and trying year. Um, what to say about COVID-19? <laughs> what to say? Um, and it's not over yet. Uh, yeah. But, but, yeah, Katie, go, go ahead, please. Just I, I think this is, you know, the least suspense possible um, for what the top story is, even though we've uh, kind of artificially created it by working in rever rever reverse here. It 
without getting into the, I could talk for hours about why this is the top story and what's happened, but it really kind of pushed everything else off the, the table. Um, and I think that, that speaks to how big a deal the police reform uh, situation was too, that that still managed to get done. You know, the governor said yesterday in his press conference kind of quipped that when he wants to get really depressed, he goes back and reads over his uh, state of the state address from last January. Um, when you laid out the the goals for the year, including that 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 2050 uh, emissions goal, that's still still progress is being made on that, but hardly anyone's talking about it to the degree that we're talking about. You know, will there be more restrictions? When will people get vaccinated? What's the positive test rate? That that's kind of the the only thing out there at this point. Yeah, yeah, um, Chris, what? What struck you most about our top story this year? It's related to how Katie described it. I think what is most significant about this is that it has touched absolutely everything. I mean, there is there is almost nothing that has happened since March 10th, was it, that we went into a state of emergency that has not been influenced in some way by COVID-19. And there is no person in Massachusetts who has not been affected in some way, whether it's, you know, falling ill or caring for a family member who's fallen ill or the millions who have been um, out of work because of this and face unbelievable um, financial pressures. This has really just upended life as we know it. And even as the the vaccinations are starting, we're going to be dealing with this for for quite a long time to come, even after we we finish the, you know, the the vaccine rollout. Um, Rebuilding back from the the damage this has done is is going to take years. Um, So it's, you know, a real inflection point in um, not just state history, but world history. Mm. Well summarized. Well summarized, um, and and you are correct, uh, both of you, that this pushed some items. Not only did this touch all the stories, but it, it pushed some items down. I mean, police reform would have been the number one story of the year were it not for COVID. Um, and I'm looking back here at uh, something that we published in the State House News Service on New Year's Day of 2020: the 2020 outlook, seven issues to watch over seven months when the legislative session was only going to last seven months more. Um, And number one, transportation revenue. Number two, climate change. Three, housing, healthcare, sports betting and gaming, education bill implementation, a jobs bill was number seven, the economic development plan. Um, uh, A lot of things got shifted to the back burner this year and and our 2020 outlook was was incredibly upended. Um, but as we, having gone through our top 10 list now, um, what surprised you that it didn't make the cut? I mean, all this COVID talk aside and all that, and if you think back to the way I opened the podcast, I did obliquely reference uh, Representative Dave Nangle. That was my pick for a story that that I put on the on my ballot for the top 10 list is something that I still thought warranted being up there, the pre-COVID federal indictment of a member of Speaker DeLeo's leadership team. Um, what what surprised you or, or what did you think at least should have gotten onto the bottom of our top 10 list this year? I mean, I had the Dave Nangle um, indictment on there as well. That might be my uh, 
my Lulson alumni bias on there. Um, got to get the got to get the Merrimack Valley story in there. <laughs> but um, you know, remember in early March when the House took a, a tax vote, they were going to raise the gas tax. Um, that's wild. That that's something we don't even really talk about anymore. Um, of course, mm. the Senate didn't follow suit, and the gas tax is the same as it was. Um, but that's a that's a major one as well. That whole kind of unraveling of that plan. Mm. The one, the one that I'll contribute, and I'm cheating a little bit because it's mostly a 2019 action, but a very late 2019 action is, remember all of the hubbub over, over vaping and e-cigarettes and state regulations over those after we had the outbreak of, of lung illnesses? I mean, that you know, happened at the late in session last year, but spilled over to the start of 2020, 2020 as the regulations took effect. Um, and that is just... It's hard to to recall that that all happened um, since COVID has overshadowed the entire picture, at least the entire public health picture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, we aren't going to hazard uh, guesses on the 2021 outlook, I think, in the same way that we laid out those seven areas of legislation that we uh, we were planning to, to see some action on. Um, but uh, if you'll indulge me, slip on your prognosticator caps. And uh, what do you think might we see as the top story of 2021, Katie and Chris? Um, I'm going to throw this out there, uh, COVID-19 and the state's response. <laughs> you don't think we're going to all get vaccinated and then just move on and have some incredible <laughs> news cycle like after the 4th of July? Oh gosh, I'm certainly not going to hazard a guess for what on earth could happen after the 4th of July. That's too many months away. But <laughs> I, I mean, I think the story's got to be, at least for a while, it's going to be the vaccine distribution. Um, how that done. Um, Are we going to see it become available to the general public as projected in mid-April? And if not, why not? What's going to happen between them? There's so many moving parts. Um, How's the new administration in D.C. going to affect all of this? What's going on with our local company, Moderna? Um, There's so many stories tied up into that. Um, And, you know, the, the things that were there pre-COVID are still there. Um, Housing, transportation, the uh, implementation of that education funding bill, as you mentioned, Sam, I think we're going to have a a busy and newsy 2021. Well, as we ring in the new year, we think about all the changes that happened this year. We think about our top stories and we think about people who might be moving on from Beacon Hill or from our from our spheres, uh, whether it be the retiring representatives. I know Speaker Mariano gave a great shout out the other day to the Dean of the House, Angelo Scascia, and his long career of public service. Uh, or we think about staff members that we've grown accustomed to working with on a daily or weekly basis for years, folks like uh, Seth Cattell or uh, Whitney Ferguson from Speaker DeLeo's office, uh, who have been regular part of our lives, you know? Um, And we also think about folks like our dedicated uh, teams at the Statehouse News Service, the reporters who have worked so hard this year, our neighbors in the press gallery and down the hall in the Globe newsroom. And uh, we also think about the business office that makes it all possible. 
And so we want to give a particular shout out at the end of 2020 to Jenna Cummings and Andy Lawfer from the Statehouse News Services Business Office who have uh, given decades of, of valuable work to making it all possible as they head into retirement. Um, thanks to you, Katie and Chris, for joining us today. And thanks to Chris Van Buskirk for uh, helping us out by producing this podcast all year long. Folks, thanks very much and uh, good luck for 2021. And in the immortal words of Health and Human Services Secretary Mary Lou Sutter's good riddance to 2020. <laughs> Practice bubble fidelity. <laughs> bubble fidelity? All right. <laughs> well, we'll pop some bubbles at the end of uh, at the end of 2020 for sure. Take care, folks. See you next year. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.